Thank you so much to the worship team for tonight. That was wonderful. Well, hello, everybody. It is so great to come on Tuesday nights. It's truly like my favorite time of the whole week. I love you all so very much. And uh, it's just such a privilege to worship together. If, if maybe, maybe you're brand new, or maybe you just haven't met me yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Elam, and I also have the incredible privilege uh, to work alongside so many great people to make Elam Young Adults happen. Thank you to my leadership team. Thank you to all the volunteers uh, in tech and on the worship teams and for greeters and snack and all the people that make these nights happen. Can we just, can we just give some love to all the people that make these nights it's, I, I truly, if it was just up to me, there would be like one Snickers and like Hillsong CD from like 1999. So, and attendance would plummet. So last week, Scott kicked off a brand new series for us called Digital Exile. Uh, in it, we're going to be unpacking how we can become resilient disciples in the face of of an unprecedented era of digital uh, technology. And I just want to start off right at the very beginning of all of this. I do not dislike technology, not at all. That is not, I'm not here to rail against it. I'm not trying to turn us back into like Stone Age people. I love technology. I love the digital era. But we're calling it digital exile because much like the Israelites who spent so many years outside of the land that they called home, outside of Israel, being held against their will, we are living at a time when we are exiled from our home in a new digital world. A world that we have, have yet to fully understand the implications of. We, you and I, we are the guinea pigs for this new technology. A world that masks a nefarious lack of relational fulfillment and, and, and masks it as connectivity and digital community. I recently read in the world of, of social media and technology that you and I, we're simply, we're, the, we're part of the profit margin on a budget sheet. Many companies don't actually care about us at all. We are simply fodder that they feed to bigger companies for ad revenue. And they keep us hooked by gradually increasing creative doses of dopamine and by employing psychological coercion to escalate rates of addiction. The reality is, when it comes to social media and technology, you and I aren't the customer, we are the product. That got dark really quick, didn't it? <laughs> but it's true. When it comes to social media and when it comes to technology, you and I are not actually the customer. Did you know that? Do you grasp that? We are the product. Without us, there's no money. Companies like Google and Apple and Facebook and a host of other ones, they employ psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, cognitive behavioral scientists, uh, and a host of other things to figure out ways to best exile us from human connections so that we use their products more. And why do they do that? To earn money. That's it. Some companies mask it as trying to help us be more productive, and they may, may very well have those intentions. But at the end of the day, you and I are a product 
that we are sold so that they can have profit. Now, Digital Exile, this series, is based on a uh, research project and uh, a yeah, that's called The Connected Generation. It was done by Barna. Uh, Scott unpacked that a little bit last week. And Barna calls the, the generation of people between 18 and 35 the connected generation. So if you're uh, between the ages of 18 and 35, congratulations, you fall in what they call the connected generation. And here's some facts about it. Mm, that's not the right slide. That's the right slide. <clears throat> this study that they did, it spanned 25 different countries across the world, including Canada, by the way. That's great. We actually have a specific report just for Canada, so that's exciting. It was offered in nine different languages. It covered 15 reli religious uh, identity categories. It used 630 country-specific regions. It polled over 140 ethnic and racial groups. It studied 94 country-specific levels of education. And it reported answers from over 15,000 people, just under 8,000 males and just over 7,500 females, as well as a group of others that preferred not to answer the question. In many ways, this is and, and was, I mean, it was just done last year, finished. So it's a sweeping study that really offers us a fantastic cross-section of people who identify with many of the same aspects of life that you and I do, except from every conceivable angle you can imagine. And what's interesting is the study identified four main types of young adults in their relationship to the Christian church. So this is what they broke them down as. The first is prodigals get that up on the screen? Yes. Prodigals, they represent 22% of the population of the f over 15,000 people that they, s they surveyed. And these are defined as individuals who do not currently identify as, as Christian, regardless of having attended a Protestant or Catholic church or having considered themselves to be a Christian as a child or teen. This is everybody that does not fit into any religious sect that would be considered Christianity. Next is the nomads. Nomads are understood as 30% of, of the representation, and they're defined as this, people who identify as Christian but have not attended church during the past month. The vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with church for six months or more. Okay? Then we move into habitual churchgoers. This group represents the largest single group that were part of this study at 38%. These are people who describe themselves as Christian and who have attended church at least once in the past month, yet do not meet the foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being what they consider an intentional, engaged disciple. And so finally, we land on what is known as resilient disciples. At just 10%, this is the smallest of the represented people in this study. However, it's the one that I want to focus the most on. And I'll get to why in a moment. But this group is defined as Christ followers who do four things. The first is they attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. Two, they trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Three, they are committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified, crucified and raised from death uh, to conquer sin. And four, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. 
And we want to spend the next couple of months kind of mining the practices that these resilient disciples exhibit in their faith so that we can begin to nurture and foster those, so, those same things in our lives. Because that's what we want, don't we? I mean, you wouldn't be here tonight if there wasn't something inside of you that said, I want more than what I'm currently doing. I want to be more. I want, I want a sense of contentment. I want a sense of fulfillment. I want something more than just where I'm at right now. This kind of growth that we talk about and, and what's in the name there, we call it discipleship in the church. But I think that, I think that we've kind of watered that down in the church. And, and not intentionally and certainly not maliciously, but I think that, that through our initiatives and our programs and in light of so many of the books and the different approaches that we have, it's actually, it's worth defining clearly. And so this is the definition of discipleship that I want to work with um, going forward. And it's this, discipleship is developing Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. That's what I want. And that's what I want for you. So how do we become people that fall under this type of description? How do we become women and men who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit? I believe it's twofold. The, the first thing is that we need to study the broader categories. We want to we study the people that are just like you and I, but are struggling. And then we want to laser in on the ones who already fit this description. Okay, if any of you have been alive for just five minutes in the world of the leadership era, which we are in right now, by the way, everybody here uh, has heard that you are a leader, right? Because you have influence, Right? No, do you not know this? Do you know you're a leader? Okay, thank you. I know who that was too. I love you, Andrew. I know, I know it's him partly because I know his voice, but also because he's a preacher's kid. And he knows that if, if he doesn't answer, I'm just going to keep asking. So he's like, shut up and just move along. Um, I know, I know that in this world of leadership, we love this phrase that we learn more from our mistakes and our failures than we do from our successes. Who's heard that before? Who believes that? Sort of, right? Okay, some waffling. It actually may be true in some cases. I'm willing to, I'm willing to say that, but I actually believe this. I believe that we learn more from studying our successes than we do on focusing on our failures. I believe this so much that I'm willing to, to debate any of you on this. And the reason why is that, I mean, can we learn from our failures? Absolutely. Should we study our failures and learn what we did wrong? 100%. I'm not saying that. However, when we study what's working now or what's worked in the past and we're willing to adapt that and learn from it, we actually come from a place of success. Listen, you can fail at every single thing in your life and you can study every single failure and unless you know what success looks like, you, it's, you're going to stumble upon it by accident. And let me tell you, some of the best things in this life and the things worth fighting for and the, and the things worth working for, you are not going to stumble into. You're not going to stumble into a resilient faith. You're not going to stumble into a good relationship with somebody. You're not going to stumble into a, a career that is tailored for you where you can thrive. You're not going to stumble into class and manage to pull off a 4.0 GPA. Unless, if you do, I hate you. But, 
But when we, when we study our successes and then we are willing to adapt those, th- I mean, that is a great place for us to learn, to know what has, has worked. So I want to look at the broad group of people before we focus on what's working for members of this resilient disciple group from around the world. And among the people that are part of this connected generation, there were five factors that stood out above everything else. And I'm talking a very exhaustive list of questions and the way that they asked it, it was, it was really well done. And if, if you're kind of nerdy like me and you like studies, I would love to show you the book and show you the, 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 the you know, how accurate it was and their margin for error and all that stuff. They're, it's the real deal. But these were the themes that rose to the top of all the answers across 25 countries and 15,000 people, and they're this. Members of the connected generation are, one, they are hyper-connected but feel lonely. Second, they are spiritually open, and in fact, surprisingly so. Uh, It was one of the things that really stunned them was when they saw across the board 18 to 35-year-olds across the world are open spiritually like they've never been before. There's one caveat. It's the, the ones that have left the church by choice, they are not open. But everybody else, the, the other 70-so percent, are very spiritually open. Three, they are living in what they called an age of anxiety. Four, they are looking for answers to questions about human suffering and global conflict. And five, people in this connected generation are longing to make a difference. And I just want to stop for one second I want to ask you to just think about it. Do any of these resonate with you? Are there any on this list that you are like, that is absolutely me? Maybe it's all of them. I doubt that it's none of them. This is what cropped up after surveying over 15,000 people in the exact same generation as you and me. And I think it's pretty astonishing. But I have two primary thoughts on this. I have have two things that I, I take away from this particular part of the study. And it's one, the first one, is that human beings are universally feeling the effects of the rise of a digital age. Universally, across 25 different countries all around the world, people like you and I are feeling the exact same effects of this digital era, for good and for bad. And, and the thing that I think is so amazing, in a time where we know how different we all are, we're actually being shown more and more how exactly the same we actually are. And I think it's because God has made us in his image. And I think that we struggle because we're all the same in flesh, we're all the same flesh and blood. We're all brothers and sisters. And I, it just blows my mind. I, when, I, when I read through this and when I study this, I see that the world is more connected than it's ever been. But the second thing that really stands out to me when I look at this, is that Christ followers are uniquely poised to overcome these effects. I believe that. I believe that our Christian faith is the antidote to overcome the chaos in our world, in our relationships, in our hearts, in our minds. And last week, uh, Pastor Scott stood up here and he shared that he is hopeful and excited for the church in Canada. And, And I echo that. I think that we are poised to do something amazing because I think that we have the answers to so many of these questions for good and for bad. Because I believe that scripture teaches us about a God who desires wholeness for his people. Psalms, for instance, is filled with messages of hope for people who are caught in less than ideal circumstances. For instance, Psalm 68, verses four and six says this. It says, sing praises to God and to his name. 
Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. In essence, what the psalmist is saying here is that those who come to God and worship him, in other words, for those that come and they put God first in their life and they pursue him, they will be delivered from the lonely, hopeless, discouraging place that they are inhabiting and they will be moved into wholeness and fulfillment with God. That is good news. The Bible also tells us this. It tells us that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. You guys got to help me out here. Like, loosen up a little bit. (laughs) It's too cold. It's warm in here. In other words, in other words, the thing that we desire most, the things that we desire most are the things that we work hardest for, right? You know this. But here's a, here's a slight spin on it, and I want to throw this at you. If we don't define our treasure we will toil in vain. And let me explain what I mean by that. Many of us don't know what our treasure is. If I were to ask you, what is, what is the object of desire in your life? What is the thing that you're working towards? What is the, the, the overarching goal and the hope in your life? Many, many people don't know the answer to that. We don't know where we're going. We don't know who we're going with. We don't know what we're doing. And if we don't know those, we certainly don't know why we're doing it. I talk to so many people who are incredibly lost. It's like life is passing them by more and more rapidly and they're increasingly anxious because they hate it, but they just don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't know how to stop it. And unfortunately, the stories that are far more scary and sad are the people that you look at and you know that that's true, but they aren't even aware of it. And so we're seeing that in this world of hyper-connectedness, that people are lonely. And paradoxically, and the thing that I find pretty interesting is that in a world where people feel increasingly lonely, they keep doing what's not working. They become more connected. They think if they could just, you know, become an influencer on Instagram or if they could just go viral on TikTok or if they could just do something or if they had more friends to text or if they had da 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 da, if something would happen, that would break them from it. But it doesn't. Instead of people shutting down and focusing on the tangible relationships, you know, the flesh and blood, people reach out and touch somebody appropriately beside you. I said appropriately. I'm watching those hands. You know, instead of seeking the answers to those big questions, we avoid them, and then the crushing anxiety of those very questions unanswered just weigh on our hearts. Many people are spiritually open. I hear this all the time. But then when they're invited into opportunities to grow and explore that, they remain at their current level of faith, or lack thereof, for months, which turns into years, which, by the way, you might not know this yet, if you do years long enough, they turn into decades. And eventually, you just find yourself at a stage of life where the world has passed you by, and everything that you loved and everything you thought you valued is just gone. So so what in the world do we do? What's, What's the answer to all of this? 
And I believe it's this. The first practice of resilient disciples is to experience intimacy with Jesus. That's the first step. If we want to be more like those men and those women who are called resilient disciples, those ones that answer those types of questions, we need to begin to clear the religious clutter in our lives and exchange it for closeness and joy in Jesus Christ. For the month of January, we're challenging you to try different things to reduce your time on your devices, to actually slow down and spend time that you'd spend on your phone, your tablet, your computer, your TV, whatever it is, and to do something that actually enhances your relationship with God. That's what we're encouraging you to do. And ironically, and trust me, it's not lost on me that we're doing this, uh, (laughs) we're sharing those challenges on social media. I get it. But hey, you got to fish where the fish are. And it's hard to get information out there without these types of things. But t- for tonight, and for at least this portion, I'm, I'm just going to try to, or I'm not going to try to convince you to get off your devices just yet. I want to explore something a little bit different with you. I want to encourage you to reduce the religious clutter in your life. And I want you, I want you to understand what I mean. Do you know what I mean by clutter, just in general? I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a quick test to know what clutter is, Okay. Everything that you bought at HomeSense is clutter. (laughs) Everything. Everything in your Amazon cart is probably clutter. Or AliExpress if you're Adam. (laughs) It is. Okay, let me, okay, so if that didn't hit with you, let me say this. You have friends coming over. No, better, better than that. Say you, your parents are coming over if you don't live at home or, or maybe some family's coming over uh, and you still live at home. Do you know that mad rush that you do before everyone gets there where you hide all your stuff and you call it organizing? <laughs> the stuff that goes in cupboards, the stuff that you throw in your bedroom and shut the door and just pray to God nobody asks you for a tour of your house? That's clutter. Don't act like you don't have clutter. You bunch of hypocrites. It's just stuff. It's stuff that you isn't necessarily bad. I mean, when my wife goes to HomeSense in the fall and buys $150 worth of pumpkins because God knows we need pumpkins in the fall, it's not that they're bad. I mean, I have nothing against pumpkins. It's just that it's stuff. And what happens when you don't need that stuff anymore? You've got to store it. You've got to deal with it. You have to pull out the Christmas stuff so you can put the pumpkins away and then decorate for Christmas with every craft your kid's ever made. And your kid's not that crafty. And it's, <laughs> it's bad. I, this is my therapy session. Thank you. Our spiritual lives are no different. Our spiritual lives are no different. And Jesus actually warns of this when he's talking to the Pharisees. And, and when, when he looks at all the rules and the ways that they're employing to try to get to God, to try to make their relationship with God more real, he says this to them in Luke eleven forty six. He says, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. I don't, I don't want to throw churches under the bus because that's not what I'm about. I mean, I love the church with all of my heart. I've given my life to the church. And as long as God has me as a pastor in a church, I will fight for the church. But I know that the church has put things in place that are clutter in our religious lives. 
They are things that are not necessarily bad, but they get in the way. They get in the way of a true relationship with Jesus. Let me put it to you this way. You know what I'm talking about, and it's not just the church, it's everywhere. I mean, how many times has somebody come up to you and said, oh, there's this new podcast you have to listen to? I mean, every single week, there's somebody that comes to me, and they're like, oh my God, Pastor Luke, you need to listen to this podcast. It's going to change your life. And inside, I'm like, when? When When am I going to have time? I've already got like 10 podcasts and audiobooks, and I've got all this other stuff, plus I have kids. There's only so many minutes between my house and work. Maybe it's a new book. I mean, I'm still waiting for Boy, Wash Your Face. That's a deep cut. The girls get it. (laughs) Or it's a YouTube channel. Or it's, God, it's a YouTube video. Somebody sends it to you and they're like, oh, Pastor Luke, watch this video. And I open it and it's like 18 minutes long. And I'm like, Lord, help me. They could have done this in three minutes, which I know you're thinking about my sermon right now, but that's, it's, (laughs) it's different. It's, it's very different. (laughs) Maybe it's a pastor, it's a program, or it's something that's trying to help you grow. And I want to venture to say that most of the time, it's positive. Most of the time, people are creating content, or they're repackaging content, because there's not a whole lot new under the sun. They're repackaging content in a way that they hope is good for you. And so it comes from a good place, but it's just overwhelming, isn't it? It's just overwhelming, And the problem with all of these approaches is that it's like this. It's like, say Morgan and I are having a really hard time, and and things in our marriage aren't going that well, and and we've been there, and we'll be there again when when there's just struggles, we're humans. But imagine we're going through one of those hard times, and she comes home from work, and I have a candlelit dinner ready for her. And I sit down, and, and I put on some sweet music, I throw in a little beebs. <laughs> you know, to encourage a sweet moment between me and the missus. You know? But the problem is, is if I cook a beautiful dinner, you know, I order from the best Panago in my part of the city. <laughs> I, leet, I, 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 I light the, the gingerbread snap candle and I throw on some beebs and I put on my, my good Eddie Bauer and I'm ready, to, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to woo my wife. But listen, if I, don't, if, I don't deal, if I don't deal with some of those things, if I don't enter into a relationship with her, if I don't work on us, if I don't help b- overcome the trust issues or that major chasm that's between us, what do you think the chances are that that candlelight dinner is going to help me get into her precious heart and mind? Get your minds out of the gutter. (laughs) What do you think the chances are? They're also zero of me having sex. I know you're thinking, and I might as well just say it. That's whatever. (laughs) Building an ongoing relationship with my wife is the only way for us to flourish as a couple. It's the only way. If I just come at it with all of these different angles and approaches and hopes and dreams and the way I talk to her, and those things are not bad. That's good clutter. That's the kind of stuff that you want. But if the relationship isn't there, if there's not intimacy there without all the trappings of my relationship in romance, it's dead. So why is it any different than when we 
encounter God. I mean, we can put all the trappings of religiosity around it, but if we don't enter into a time where we work on the intimacy with Jesus and we work on a relationship with God, we can't flourish. To be a man who is resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and to be able to live a vibrant life in the Spirit, I must pour into my relationship with God. And there is a day coming in our lives that we will evaluate the priorities of faith. And this is something that happens all throughout our lives. But in those moments of growth, we begin to see that the we need to begin to see that the thing that's at the center of everything is Jesus. A relationship that results in a feeling of closeness with God and what's known as conversational intimacy with Jesus. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But how do we do that? Well, first, we need to be reminded that the only true spirituality is found in the person of Jesus. Like the study showed, 70 or so percent of people in our generation are open to spirituality. The problem is, is that it's misguided. And you've heard me rant about a few things over the past year and a half, and if you're new, I'm sorry, I'm going to rant again. But our world tells us some things, doesn't it? It tells us things like this, just live your own truth. Have you heard this? You haven't heard this. Bless you, sister. Our world tells us to just live our own truth. It says, achieve your dreams. I mean, it's the new year. I mean, how many, how many places do you see? Like, go for it. Achieve your dreams. Let this be your year. Just be you. Just do you. That one I hate the most. Just do you, bro. What does that even mean? And the one, and the one that I, I've talked about before, be the best version of yourself. I, I'm just telling you right now, the very best version of you is still not that great. And this one, this one makes me want to puke in my mouth and then swallow it just so I can puke again. Follow your North Star. With a picture of a constellation. You see, the new moral code of our world places you and I at the center of the moral universe. And I don't know about you, but I actually do not want the power to be the one that decides between right and wrong. I don't want to be the one that decides who is right, who is wrong, whose truth is more elevated than someone else's truth. I don't want that. I don't want that kind of power. You might think that you do, but there will come a day when your truth clashes with somebody else's truth and you're both going to lose. But listen, the truth that we desperately need, the truth that is actually worth pursuing, and the truth that will, like Jesus says in John 8, 32, will set us free is Jesus. It just is and the author of Hebrew, he tells us all about who this Jesus is. He writes, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. Let me just pause there for a second. We serve a God who is not dead. Right? We serve a God who sits at the right hand of the throne of heaven. A Jesus who is worth worshiping tonight. 
He goes on, Jesus, the Son of God, and let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Let me pause one more time. Because if we believe that if Jesus came back today, that he would be really old school, wearing sandals and writing on stone tablets, I'm telling you, that's wrong. If Jesus were to show up today, he would be wearing Eddie Bauer and have a smartphone just like me. That should have garnered more applause. But I'm telling you, if Jesus were to come back now, he would do life the same way that you and I would, except he would do something a little bit different. The writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, yet he did not sin. He would find a way to work technology and everything in our society together for good. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is the one worth following. This one who has gone before us, who has felt the same emotions and been tempted by the same things, yet came out unscathed and defeated death. Paul, says, Paul writes rather in Philippians 3.9, become one with him. That's Paul's answer to everything he's just written. Become one with him. And then he goes on to say, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Let me say it this way. God is impressed with our faith, not our feats. Hebrew 11.6 goes on a little bit later, and it says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. God runs to those who have faith. He, those people who dedicate themselves to knowing him more. And I don't just mean Academically. I don't just mean understanding him. And I want to ask you a question. Why is it that at a time when we have access to more information than ever before, does it seem like the very fabric of our world is unraveling? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, back in the Nixon era of the presidency of the United States, they talked about the 20-hour work week. They talked about what people would do in the future with all of this free time because technology was going to free people up to have this wonderful life. But why is it that when we're standing in that wonderful life, that it seems like the world is just falling apart? Shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't it be the opposite of where we are? Shouldn't people be more fulfilled? Shouldn't they be less lonely Shouldn't they be more loved? Shouldn't they be less worried, more content, happier, joyous? Instead, we see that suicide rates are constantly on the incline. Depression is affecting more and more people every single day, it seems like. Anxiety is near pandemic levels. All in the midst of vast knowledge and information transfer at an unprecedented rate. Does that not make you shake your head and wonder? I know it baffles me. Because let me tell you something. People talk to me about the good old days all the time. They don't exist. We are living in the good old days right now. 
There has never been a better time to be alive than right now. We have medicine. We have hope. We have education. We have human rights. You know, it's not perfect, but we're certainly working on it. Right now is the best time to be alive. So why is there so much brokenness? And I think it's this. I think it's because we've traded intimacy for information. When we choose to remain in digital exile instead of making the pilgrimage home to where God wants us to be, we choose a life that is a cheap substitute for what God has for us. And do you want to know how I know this? Let me prove it to you right now. I've got three examples that I want to read to you. The first is this. There's a reason why you feel bad after scrolling on Instagram for an hour. There's a reason why you don't feel good. You don't finish that hour-long scroll session. You go, oh man, I'm awesome. You finish it and you go, oh geez, I just wasted an hour. And there's a reason why after just 10 minutes of quiet in the presence of God, you feel amazing. There's a reason why you feel deep, real human shame when you masturbate to pornography. And there's a reason why you feel amazing and on top of the world when you get to go on a date with somebody that you care for. There's a reason why you feel lonely after texting people all day long. I talked to a young girl recently who sends over 600 text messages a day. There's a reason why you still feel lonely after that. But there's also a reason why you feel warm and fuzzy after you have a two-hour coffee with a close friend. Friends, God's ways are superior to the world's ways in every conceivable manner. Intimacy with God requires intimacy with other people. Real, flesh and blood humans, like the ones you're sitting beside right now. And it requires that we strip away all of the extras of our lives and and even in our faith so that we can begin to trust Jesus. I read recently in an article on intimacy with Christ, the author John Bloom, he writes it this way. He says, intimacy with God often occurs in the places where we must trust Jesus him most. Heaven on earth is the inexpressible joy and the peace that surpasses understanding that comes from trusting God wholly. For as the old hymn writer said, they who trust him wholly find him wholly true. So as we go into the rest of our weeks, I want us to begin to focus on a relationship with Jesus. It's not complicated. It's not really that flashy. And there's, there's really no way to make it more accessible. There's, there's no program, there's no book, there's, no, there's nothing that makes it easier or sexier. It's just a real, uncomplicated gospel. It's a simple gospel. And I want to give you three basic tools tonight. And you're going to hate what I'm about to say because it's not original but it's still true. You need to get into scripture. You just gotta do it. I don't know how to make it cooler. I don't know how to make it more 
real other than it's just, it's the place we get life. My friends, when I wake up in the morning, I try to get up every day an hour before my kids wake up, and I sit, and I I just, I read God's word. And when I stop reading God's word, I just listen. But it's reading God's word that I just, every single time I do it, and don't, I'm not perfect, I don't do it all the time. Some days I miss it. There's seasons of my life that I wonder, I'm like, when have I picked up my Bible last other than to prepare a sermon? And it's, it happens. But the reality is, is that when we are in scripture, when we are in God's word, I promise you it will speak to you. And listen, if you've never done it before, if it's been a really long time since you've opened God's word, we want to help you. And we, the, the, the tool that we have, and it's not exciting, but it's just, it's to get into scripture five minutes a day. And so if you don't know where to start, we can help you with that. But I'm telling you, you don't need all this clutter in your life. You don't need a new journal and a new reading plan. And you don't need a new chair. And you don't need a new mug so you can pour your hot apple cider in the morning so that you can read. You don't need all of those things. You just need God's word. If you don't have a Bible, I will give you a Bible. It's just, it's the place to start. There's nothing, I can't make it cooler than that. The second one is pray. I mean, how, I just, I don't even know what to say about this. I I mean, I'll try as we go along to spice it up a little bit, but I've been in your situation. I've been in a situation where like people have told me, just pray, just pray, just pray. I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to do. But it's just, it's simple. We just talk to God. Thank him for what he's doing. Ask him for direction. Sometimes just be quiet. Morgan actually sent me this today, a quote. She said, God gave us mouths that close and ears that don't. That should tell us something. I'm choosing not to read into why my wife felt it necessary to send me that. Some of the most powerful times in my Christian walk have been when I've been silent in the presence of God. Sitting in an old chair, just trying to focus my mind on him. And finally, stop the scroll. Just stop. It seems like I have been in times when I've got my phone and I'm sitting and I'm scrolling and as I'm scrolling, I'm going, I just want to stop. I don't even care. But I can't. I can't, I'm not even looking at it. I'm not even liking it. Yes, I scroll past your stuff and I don't like it. It's, I like it, but I don't double t- tap it because I can't be bothered to break my scroll. And sometimes, actually, I look at Morgan when she's scrolling. I'm like, how do you even see anything? She's just like, <laughs> but that's because she's smarter than me. I mean, put your phone in another room. Just do it. Just come home and, and put it. <laughs> hey, man. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can clap for that. But, but seriously, put your phone in another room. Uh, get a charger. Charge it out in the, the hallway when you go to bed. Don't leave your phone in your bedroom. For, buy an alarm clock. Like They have those. They're cheap. They're like $10 on Amazon. And they're not clutter. That's what you were thinking. And yes, your phone has one, but stop. Here's one. If you don't want to do any of that, if you think that's stupid... Stop bringing your phone into the bathroom with you. For one, for one, your time in the bathroom will decrease drastically and your family will stop thinking you have something wrong with you. And two, your legs will stop going numb. I thought something was wrong with me. 
every time I went to the washroom, my legs went numb. But then I realized it was because I was not liking all of your posts. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but, but really, these things are meant to enhance our lives. Yet we are prisoners to them. We are in exile from what God has for us. And it's a digital exile and it is a cheap substitute for what God, a cheap substitute for what God has for us. And so this is my, this is my prayer and this is my heart for our community. And this is where I want us to go. I want Elam young adults to become Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. That's what breaks my heart at night is I want to make women and men who are that. Next week, we're going to continue this topic. We're going to look at how we actually develop an identity that's rooted in Christ and, and what that actually means. And we're going to have discussion around tables. And so I hope you come out next week to continue on in our journey. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you desire something far more for us than the world could ever manufacture. God, help us to uh, take hold of our technology and use it to improve our lives instead of distracting us from our life. God, would all the glory and the praise be to you. And God, would we learn how to come and be in your presence and to start to develop that intimacy and that relationship with you, God, that will help us on our pilgrimage home. We love you.